What if your biggest obstacle was actually your best opportunity? If you've ever studied what makes a good story, or if you've ever looked at a plot chart of a good story, a story that touches your heart, you'll know that the stories that impact us most deeply are the stories where this character that we love faces a seemingly insurmountable obstacle. They face a challenge that seems utterly hopeless, and as the story goes on, this challenge just gets more and more formidable, and we don't know how this character that we love is going to overcome it. And then, at the last moment, there's a twist, and the character that we love overcomes this challenge and proceeds on to victory. Those are the stories that touch our heart the deepest, the stories where these obstacles turn into opportunities. In the classic Disney story, movie, Toy Story, it's this tale of two toys, Buzz Lightyear, this space ranger, and Woody, his cowboy pal. And these two toys belong to one boy, their beloved Andy, who writes his name on their feet. But these two toys have an identity crisis. You see, Buzz Lightyear, this delusional toy astronaut, actually thinks that he is a space hero. And he's crushed when he finds out the hard way that he's actually just a wimpy, measly, little, run-of-the-mill plastic toy. So when Buzz Lightyear and his cowboy pal Woody are both captured by the evil toy-smashing kid named Sid, Buzz is strapped to a rocket, and he awaits his doom. Soon, the rocket will be lit, and Buzz will be blown to smithereens. He's hopeless. He says, I'm just a toy, a stupid little insignificant toy. And as Buzz sits strapped to this rocket, he has given up. But Woody then reminds Buzz of who he really is. You must not be thinking clearly, Woody says. Look, over in that house, there's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're his. And Buzz then lifts his foot and he sees there written in black permanent ink the name of the boy to whom he really belongs, Andy. And Buzz remembers who he is. He finds the strength to do what he must. And he goes on to turn his biggest obstacle into an opportunity for escape. And Buzz and Woody, they light the rocket and they ride it out of Sid's clutches and back home to Andy. Buzz remembered his identity. And he was able to seize his biggest obstacle and turn it into his best opportunity. And that's what's happening today to the church in Philadelphia. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is going to remind this weak, puny little church in Philadelphia, this church is in a tight spot, and he's going to remind them of who he is and who they are. And as a result, he calls them to turn their biggest obstacle into their best opportunity. We're going to look at three major images that Jesus uses today in this text. A door, a key, and a pillar. First, the door. The door has to do with opportunity. Opportunity. Uh, Look at what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word. And have not denied my name. So Jesus says that Philadelphia has an open door, an opportunity. 
The city of Philadelphia was a strategic city. In fact, this city was deliberately positioned in a way so as to maximize the spread of Greek culture throughout the world. So Philadelphia's goal as a city was to take Greek thought and Greek religion and Greek lifestyle to the east. And yet Jesus says, I have something greater for you to spread. Spread the gospel. They had a great open-door opportunity. You see, by this point, Rome had provided a peaceful environment through which to travel throughout most of the empire. They even had Roman roads that they could use. The Philadelphians, they had access to this common Greek language used throughout the area. They even had access to a Greek Old Testament that they could use. And the city of Philadelphia was strategically, geographically located in a way that would make it easy for evangelism and mission work. They have an open door opportunity. Jesus says, seize this opportunity. And that's a common theme throughout scripture. We are called to seize every opportunity that God gives us. Paul writes about this. He says in Ephesians chapter five, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He says in Galatians six, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 2 Timothy 4, he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. We are called to seize every opportunity that God gives us to do his work and to spread his word. But how do we know what those opportunities are? What are our open doors? You know, sometimes I think we make finding God's will a little bit too complicated. Uh, people think about finding God's will like, man, I got I to gotta find these signals and these signs. I'm just looking for them from the Lord. My alarm clock went off this morning at 7.47 a.m. I wonder if I'm supposed to buy a plane ticket. No. <laughs> Discerning God's will isn't like playing Where's Waldo or putting together some divine jigsaw puzzle. It's more about soaking your mind in the word, living a life of prayer, surrounding yourself with godly people, and then just doing What's in front of you? And for a lot of you, that's not going to look very exciting because what's in front of you right now is an obstacle. Your life may be tough right now. Every one of you is going through something. You know what it is. But what if your biggest obstacle was actually your best opportunity? In fact, look at what Paul says about an open-door opportunity that he had. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says, A great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Wait, isn't that contradictory? How can an open door and opposition go together? Well, when you open a door, a lot of the time it lets flies in the house, doesn't it? (laughs) What if our best open doors came with opposition? What if your best opportunity to witness was the biggest struggle that you're going through right now? The church in Philadelphia, they were struggling. They faced opposition. They were a small ragtag group, probably two or three dozen at the biggest. But this city in in Philadelphia, there was a Jewish community of several thousand, and the Jews hated the Christians. So when the Christians would try to go to the synagogues, they'd find the door shut in their faces. But Jesus looks at that closed door and he says, nah, I have an open door for you that no one can shut. Because even in your weakness, you have an open door opportunity. You may not think that you're very strong or very gifted 
that you don't have enough time, that you don't have enough talent, you don't have enough energy. You may think, I'm nobody. I can't preach. I can't sing. I can't go overseas as a missionary. You may look at what Jesus wants you to do, and you may say, no way. That's impossible. I'd get hurt. It can't be done. It's too risky. I don't have what it takes. But Jesus doesn't care what you don't have. He's calling us to look at what we do have. Because just a little bit of strength goes a long way with God. In the Old Testament, when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush and he calls him to go confront the mighty Pharaoh, little old Moses is full of excuses. He says, I can't talk very well. I don't know what to say. Send somebody else. But look at what God says in Exodus 4.2. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff? He replied. God says, what have you got there, Moses? A staff? I can use that. And with that staff, God brings the ten plagues and the sea parts and the people walk through to freedom. But it's not just Moses. God says, what have you got there, Abraham? An elderly wife with a womb as dry as the desert? I can use that. And from that womb, a child, a family, a nation springs forth. What have you got there, Joseph? Shackled ankles and a 25-to-life prison sentence? I can use that. How would you like to change the world? What have you got there, Samson? The jawbone of a donkey and a thousand enemies coming up? I can use that. What have you got there, little shepherd boy? Five smooth stones and a sling? I can use that. What have you got there, Elijah, a starving family? A little pinch of flour and a few drops of oil? I can use that. What have you got there, Bethlehem? A teenage virgin and a cattle stall? I can use that. What have you got there, boy, five crackers and two pickled sardines? I can use that. What have you got there, poor widow? A couple pennies and a willing heart? I can use that. What have you got there, son? Twelve unschooled ordinary men? I can use that. What have you got there, Rome? A cross? I can use that. What have you got there, church? A mustard seed of faith? I can use that. It may not seem like much, but with a little bit of faith and a great big God, your biggest obstacle can become your best opportunity. When I think of turning your biggest obstacle into your best opportunity, I think of my friend Helen Laniger. Helen is the matriarch of the little country church that I preached at for two years before coming up here, Sheldon Christian Church in Sheldon, Missouri. It's a tiny little town of about 500. Don't blink or you'll miss it. It's nothing special. Just a blue-collar group of God's best people hidden there among the cornfields. And Helen is the cream of the crop. Helen is pretty short. She makes me look tall so that when she would give me her weekly hug, her beautiful gray hair would only come up to about my ribcage. Helen still lives in the little white house just a couple blocks down from the church. She's the first one there every Sunday morning. I never beat her to church, and believe me, I tried. And to this day, Helen will come to the church. She'll fill the communion trays. 
She'll set out her lesson that she's gonna teach her Sunday school class that day. She'll lay out the music on the white baby grand piano that she plays every week. She's already typed up the bulletins and folded them and put them out in the foyer. And after she gets ready for church, she goes back home. She goes home to check on her husband, Laverne. Laverne, like Helen, is in his 80s. He's a staple around town. He was the chairman of the board of Sheldon Christian Church. Everybody knows Laverne, but Laverne had a stroke a few years ago, and things haven't been the same since. It's become quite an obstacle for them. So Helen goes home before church to check on Laverne and see if he's feeling well enough to come to church that day. She'll say, I went home to check on my boy, but Vernie just wasn't feeling up to it today. And throughout the week, Helen actively turns their biggest obstacle into their best opportunity, an opportunity to look like Jesus. Helen will patiently love and serve Laverne. She'll help him get ready, get around, get some food. She'll take him outside, help him enjoy the sunshine and mow the lawn because mowing the lawn is still good for his soul. In the evening, she'll sit inside with him and she'll narrate the play-by-play of the Cardinals game to him because he loves those Redbirds. And the people around town who don't fit in, they fit in with Helen. To most people, they're an obstacle. But to her, they're an opportunity. Helen will take countless calls from people that nobody else wants to talk to. She'll referee all the little tiffs among the ladies throughout the week in the neighborhood. She'll bake dozens of cookies for people so they can taste the fact that they're loved. She'll even go over to Dorothy's house, the local lady who's a little bit off of her rocker. But Helen loves her anyway. Helen's her friend. And when I look at my friend Helen, I see Jesus. Most women with handicapped husbands in their 80s would be the ones asking for help, not the ones helping everybody else. And yet every week, Helen taught me how to turn your biggest obstacle into your best opportunity. And the people of Sheldon, Missouri, they might ignore the Bible, but they'll notice Helen. And they will notice you. So what if you decided to turn your biggest obstacle into your best opportunity to witness? But the key to turning a closed-door obstacle into an open-door opportunity is not our own power. So let's look at this key that Jesus talks about. The door has to do with our opportunity, but the key has to do with God's sovereignty. Look at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who's holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. You see, we aren't strong enough to open and close doors on our own, but Jesus holds the key. We may only have a little power, but we are indeed indwelt by a powerful God. After all, look at what the Lord spoke to the Apostle Paul in in, in 2 Corinthians 12. While Paul was going through suffering and frailty, God said, no, no, no. My power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus holds the key to turning your weakness into his power. And that key has to do with his sovereignty. He's the one who opens the doors that no one can shut. The master of the cosmos holds the master key. And what if the master has unlocked a door for you? 
What if the key to seizing your obstacle and turning it into an opportunity is his power? So today, if you're intimidated, if you're scared, if you're beat down, if you're hurt, if you're confused or unsure, take heart. Because Jesus holds the key to turning your test into your testimony, to turning your struggle into your story, to turning your mess into his message. Jesus holds absolute authority over your life, which means that ultimately he's in charge, not you. Jesus is telling you, hey, trust me, trust the process. That's good news for us, that he is in charge and he is every day using average, ordinary people like us to do his work. Look at what Paul writes about this to the church in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Maybe your life looks pretty small and pathetic right now. Maybe you're up against a big obstacle. Maybe it feels to you like the doors are just slammed shut in your face. You didn't want to go through that health struggle again. Maybe your job is uncertain and you're not sure how you're going to pay the bills. Maybe you're in the midst of some family conflict and it just really hurts. Maybe you still have that old sin that keeps rearing its ugly head and you don't know how to kick it. Maybe you can't seem to find good friends. Maybe you wanted to be married by now. But Christ is promising that the key to your suffering is him. That if you allow him to mold you and to shape you, and if you approach your suffering in humble, obedient faith, he can turn your greatest obstacle into your best opportunity. He can open the door for your opportunity with his sovereignty. I could tell you about Nick Foles, a washed-up backup quarterback in the NFL who almost quit football recently, but somehow he felt called to stay. In case you missed it, he won the Super Bowl MVP last week, and he used that platform as an opportunity to preach the gospel. Oh, yeah, and what city did he play for? Philadelphia. (laughs) I could tell you about when my mom was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and how she used that as an opportunity to connect with and minister to other women who had that same form of cancer. I could tell you about my father-in-law, Kevin, who preached in small town Kansas at the same church for 30 years, a soul winner, absolutely on fire for Jesus, a faithful staple in the community and one of the best lovers of people that I know. But then, because of another person's sin, Kevin was forced out of the church that he'd given his life to. But instead of being bitter or resentful, He's used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel of God's love and model radical grace and forgiveness for everybody that's watched him go through this. I could tell you about some of you when I've come to visit you in the hospital and I've left and I don't know who the minister was. (laughs) 
Because you, in the midst of your sickness and your hardship, you're the ones inspiring me. You're the ones ministering to and witnessing to the doctors and the nurses around you. The key to your suffering is the power of Jesus Christ. Because when you suffer in faith, you have an open door, and your greatest obstacle actually becomes your greatest opportunity. So how can you use your life circumstance right now to set an example for those around you to serve God uniquely in this present hardship that you may be going through? What if your sickness could be an opportunity to express your hope in Christ? What if maybe you're in retirement and you actually have some discretionary time on your hands and maybe even discretionary money? Maybe you're close to your family. What if you could use that as a unique opportunity for service and generosity and discipleship? What if you don't live where you live by accident? What if you live where you live because God's given you the key to helping your neighbors know about Jesus? What if the people you work with or the people you go to school with weren't there by accident? What if they're your open door? What if your financial struggles are an opportunity for you to show your faith that God provides? What if that person who mistreats you is giving you an opportunity to express God's wild grace and heap burning coals of kindness on them? What if your loneliness is an opportunity for you to deepen your prayer life and to testify that intimacy with God is what really satisfies you? What if your biggest obstacle is actually your best opportunity? So we've looked at the door that has to do with our opportunity and the key that has to do with God's sovereignty. Next, let's look at this pillar. This pillar, it's a promise to us. But in each of these seven letters, I don't know if you've noticed, the promise, is, Jesus says in this translation, it says, to the one who's victorious. That's what each of these promises are. To the one who's victorious. Your Bible may say, to the one who overcomes. And we are called to overcome, to be overcomers, because this life that we are living is not a cakewalk. We are facing a struggle. We are in the midst of a story, facing obstacles that we will be forced to overcome. But if we overcome in faith, how do we overcome, Revelation says, chapter 12? We've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We overcome by faith in the blood of the Lamb and seizing the opportunity in our obstacle with the word of our testimony. And if we overcome, there's a promise for us. This promise of the pillar has to do with our identity, with our identity. About 50 years before these letters were written, a major earthquake devastated the city of Philadelphia. The damage was actually so bad that the emperor of Rome, it was Tiberius at the time, gave the city a grant to help them rebuild. And when the city rebuilt, they named the city, they renamed the whole city after uh, the emperor, Tiberius, they named it Neo Caesarea. Neo, neo, meaning new, and Caesarea, you can kind of hear it there in the word, for Caesar. So they named the city Neo Caesarea after the emperor. But then another emperor came around and they actually restored the old name of the city back to them. And then another emperor came around and they renamed the city yet again. So the city of Philadelphia is going through a bit of an identity crisis here. And all the while, Earthquake shocks were happening frequently still inside the city. It was almost a daily occurrence. And when the earth would shake just a little bit, masonry could fall down from the buildings, and if you happened to be walking below them, you could die. It was dangerous to be in the city of Philadelphia. So most of the Philadelphians actually lived outside of the city for fear of these earthquake shocks. And if you were inside the city when the earth started to shake at the slightest tremor, you would skedaddle out of town. 
So Jesus writes to this city with an ever-changing identity, a city founded on the uncertainty of ever-shifting ground, a church faced with the ever-present reality of persistent persecution. So imagine being in Philadelphia the day the minister stood up and read these words from Jesus to the church, verse 12. To the one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So because they seized their opportunity and did not deny his name, they are inscribed with his name, an unchanging name, a permanent identity written on them. They will live as citizens of an eternal city that will never be shaken, and they'll never have to leave. They'll never have to evacuate, pack up, board up, pick up, or rebuild their homes again. Philadelphia may have been called Neo-Caesarea, but these Christians are headed for Neo-Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the heaven that we're headed for, the holy city of God. And God says he will make them pillars in his temple. But hold on for a second. Look at this. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 says something interesting about the new Jerusalem, heaven, and this temple. Verse 22 says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Well, what does that mean? We actually catch another clue here in Revelation chapter 21, verse 16, in the dimensions of the city. Verse 16 says, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. In other words, we see heaven here portrayed as a perfect cube. Do you remember what else in Scripture is a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies in the temple. The inner sanctum, the room in which the presence and glory of God dwelt most fully on earth. And yet in heaven, we're not going to have to go to a special room to find the presence of God. Where we are headed, this whole place is going to be filled with the pervasive presence of the almighty God in himself. And with his presence forever among his people, you, no matter how weak you are now, will be made into a pillar forever strong and secure in him that's who you are. You have his name on you, and you are headed for his home. And when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. When you know your identity as citizens of heaven, you'll be able to seize your opportunity during your brief time here on earth. You guys remember Buzz Lightyear? The key to him seizing his opportunity was remembering his identity as a toy belonging to and loved by Andy. Well, in the next movie, Toy Story 2, this time it's Woody who's forgotten who he is. Woody is persuaded to give up the hard life of being a toy and to join the easy life of being a museum collectible. There, he's told that he would be cared for meticulously forever, but never played with or loved again. So Woody joins the museum gang, and the name Andy on his boot is painted over. He's given up on being a toy. 
The obstacle was too great. He has lost sight of his identity. But Buzz Lightyear and his search party track Woody down. And in the climactic moment of the confrontation, Buzz reminds Woody that life's only worth living if you're loved by a kid. And all of a sudden it hits Woody and he looks down at his boot and he scratches off the paint and he sees Andy's name written there. And he resolves to return to the boy who loves him. And together, Buzz and Woody reclaim Woody's identity and they seize their opportunity. Church, you may be facing right now what seems like an insurmountable obstacle. But your biggest obstacle can become your best opportunity when you remember your identity. You belong to the one who holds the key, who's unlocked the door and has made a way for you to come home and be with him forever in his presence. Why? Because you're loved, not just by a kid, but by God himself. That's who you are. And just how far does his love go? To infinity and beyond. (laughs) It goes so far as to make a way for you to come home and to be with him. You know, in Israel, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, and even he could only do it once a year. But the writer of Hebrews says that we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do now as we come to this time of communion. Christ overcame the biggest obstacle to give us the best opportunity. He holds the key. And he's opened a door for us to heaven itself. Let's be sure we walk through it. Let's sing as we come to this time of communion now together.